Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 It starts with rivalry and a challenge by the, by the junior officer to his superior. And Achilles says, I do all the fighting and you come back with all the loot. I do all the fighting and you come back with all the loot. And I'm sick of it. See? Well, a plague has been sent. They're suffering from a plague. Gerard says the plague is almost always a symbol for, of a social crisis, even though there may be some natural phenomenon that triggers it. It's almost always a symbol for a social crisis. There's a plague, and they're trying to figure out what. They know Apollo is visiting this plague upon them. And Achilles ponders it. He's the first to ponder it in the poem. What's going wrong? And he says, Has Apollo some quarrel with us for a failure in vows or hecatombs, sacrifices? Would mutton burned or smoking goat flesh make him lift the plague? In other words, his first assumption is, this social crisis has to do with the failure of a sacrifice. That there's something has gone wrong with our sacrificial arrangements or our sacrificial procedures. We have, we have not followed the rubrics exactly right or something. This happens in the Hebrew Scriptures all the time too. There must be some reason for this, God. And it has to be... We, it, the first assumption is that it has to do with sacrifice. Sacrifices haven't worked in some way. Shakespeare, now remember, at the heart of this is a challenge by a lesser officer to his superior, Achilles to Agamemnon, a challenge unheard of in a world where the social stratifications are in place. Now remember, Heraclitus said, the logos of violence creates social differentiation. The masters and the slaves, the, the leaders and the led, the, et cetera, et cetera. It creates a situation where the mimetic rivalry, it, it, uh, it disinclines mimetic rivalry across these barriers. I can rival to some extent with those that are my equals, and equals always rival if we're in, mimet if we're in a mimetic frame of mind, equals always rival. Equality creates the, the, the condition for rivalry. If that's what we're doing, if we're totally mimetic creatures, that's what happens. So these structures exist to prevent us from looking at the, you know, at the king as he rides by, thinking, what's he doing up there? What's he know? I don't know, etc. It prevents that from happening. So here now, it's broken. And Achilles says, I do the fighting, you get all the goodies, I'm sick of it, and he walks out. It's a social crisis. Shakespeare treats it the same social crisis in Troilus and Cressida, which is a study of the Trojan War. From the mimetic point of view, and totally, Shakespeare's constantly looking at the mimetic aspects of this, which Girard points out in, in a way that's overwhelming in his book, uh, The Theater of Envy. It's his study of Shakespeare. They come, the, the, the Greek leaders come to... Uh, Ulysses, who's the crafty one, the sort of wise and wily crafty one of the Greeks. And in Shakespeare, they come to Ulysses and they say, what's going on? There's this crisis in our camp. 
There's no more harmony. We're at, we're everybody's bitching and moaning and at each other's throats. What's going on? And Ulysses says, now, Ulysses, uh, Shakespeare uses the term degree to mean social differentiations, social hierarchy. It's his word for social hierarchy. So Ulysses says, in response to this question, what's gone wrong? He says, when degree is shaken, which is the latter of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. You see, if you have these social stratifications, we meet with a kind of... There's, a, there's certain... We have these uh, customs for how you greet one another, like in a military operation. You know how you greet somebody that's of a higher rank and so on. There's certain little things that you do. Everything is worked out in a, in a world where we all fit into this elaborate social scene. But take it away, each thing meets in mere opugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms. Here we have that water coming up again. You see that same image. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid glow. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. He goes right into the family society, the closest social unit, and blows it apart. Do we need to be told that in our day? For, so Ulysses goes on. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything include itself in power and power into will and will into appetite and appetite a universal wolf so doubly seconded with will and power must make perforce a universal prey and last eat up himself final finally self-annihilation a frenzy that leads to self-annihilation now, I should say up here, it says, untune that string and hark what discord follows. Who has untuned that string? Christ. The Christian revelation shows us that all of these social differentiations are merely circumstantial. They need not be despised because of that. If we despise them because they're merely circumstantial, we become scandalized and we fall into this pit. Maybe we need to remove them Maybe some we can tolerate. If they're morally problematic, fine. But they're merely circumstantial. We can only give them the due that's due to something that's merely circumstantial. It's Jesus who's untuning the string. Untune that string and hark what discord follows. And I would say in parentheses, if we behave the same way we behaved before the string was untuned. If we... If, if, if our sense of who we are and so on is still derived from that same kind of anthropology that made it necessary to invent the temple. So, here, it's starting to fall apart. Then Ulysses says, And this neglection of, de of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. The generals disdained by him one step below he by the next, the next by him beneath. So every step, exampled by the first that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. You get that? It almost comes this crashing mimetic analysis. 
and envious, you see, trying to get overcome the one above us. And the whole thing turns into quicksand. An envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. Now, Paul said, we no longer have sacrifice. The Greek word is thuo, which also means murder. We no longer have sacrifice. Since we no longer have sacrifice, speaking to his church, churches that he's preached to, since we no longer have thuo, sacrifice, we must do everything we can to avoid thumos, which is a cognate of the same root, which means rage, wrath, anger. And if we are to avoid thumos, we must uh, forswear epithumia, which is Paul's word for desire. And the root of that word is rage, a desire that ends in rage, first, that, that goes from mere desire to wrath to violence to sacrifice, either violence or sacrifice. And he says, we no longer have sacrifice, so it will result in violence. So we don't try to stop it at the level of violence. He doesn't say, let's not, let's not be violent. He, he go, the, the, the New Testament goes to the heart of the matter. It doesn't stop at rage. It goes back even further, and, it's, and it goes to the very mechanism that has us in its grip. You know, in the Genesis story, it's the snake who is the mediator of desire, who awakens a desire that wasn't there before. It's a mimetic desire. And then it's a rivalry with God, wanting to be like God. That's at play right in that Genesis story. And it's that process that we are fallen creatures as a result of that process. Paul says, we no longer have the temple or the we no longer have the sacrificial wherewithal to pull the fat out of the fire at the last minute. This is a mixed metaphor, I guess, because it's really throwing the victim into the fire. We can no longer do it sacrificially. So we must avoid wrath, thumos, and the only way to avoid wrath is to, is to uh, renounce epithumia. Now, we think, oh, well, there goes Paul again, you know. Paul has gotten such a bum rap. And the people who've been laughing up their sleeve at Paul have been suffering from the very craziness that he delineates in his letters. For instance, he says, to writing to the Galatians, he says, my brothers, you were called, as you know, to freedom. The Greek word means emancipation of slaves. You were slaves, and now you're free. He's talking about slaves to the Torah. You, you were slaves of conventional religion, and you are now free. But be careful, he said, or this freedom will provide an opening for self-indulgence. Here translate self-indulgence. I would use the word undisciplined life because for Paul, the antidote to this is, is the kind of discipline that flows naturally, not from a moralistic way, that flows naturally from being a disciple. In other words, from having a Lord. So Paul is talking about an undisciplined life, which is a life which is a life that does not have a Lord. So he says, Why? be careful. You're free. But you're, gonna, you, you're so free, you may, you may be out of the frying pan into the fire. 
unless you watch out. And then he catalogs this. He says, in other words, you might be free of conventional religion only to fall in to the social madness that conventional religion was invented to ward off. So he says, serve one another in works of love. Since the whole of the law is summarized in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to come back to that later. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you go on snapping at each other and tearing each other to pieces, you had better watch out or you will destroy the whole community. When self-indulgence is at work or the undisciplined life is at work, the results are obvious. Fornication, gross indecency, and sexual irresponsibility. And this is where the modern world says, oh, there he goes again. And he goes on. Idolatry and sorcery, feuds and wrangling, jealousy, bad temper, quarrels, disagreements, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and similar things. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who behave like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Since the Spirit is our life, let us be directed by the Spirit, Paul says. We must stop being vainglorious, provocative, and envious. Vainglorious, provocative, and envious. The word, Greek word for vainglory is kenodoxos. Kenodoxos, empty glory. Keno means uh, like kenosis, an emptying. Christian, in Christ, Christian anthropology or Christian psychology, if there is such a thing, there is an emptying, there is a canonic, it is a canonic phenomenon. But here, there is an emptying that's, that, that is unintended. There is an attempt to fill with glory, but it's an empty glory. There's nothing to it. Prestige, you know, the word prestige means a conjuring trick. So vainglory, and, and stop being vainglory, stop being provocative, the Greek word means to taunt or to challenge to a duel. See? And stop being envious. The Greek word, uh, my etymological dictionary says, the Greek means the following, quote, the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. We know that's obviously that's envy, but the, when you spell it out, you see what it is, how, what a mimetic tangle it is. And he's saying we have to avoid these passions, my friends. Because we have no way to keep them from leading us into complete social and psychological disintegration. Now, this litany of these things up here sounds like he's making a moral judgment. And obviously, moral judgments have to be made about them. But in our time, about half of this list... Fornication, gross indecency, sexual irresponsibility, jealousy, bad temper, quarrels, disagreements, factions, envy. About half of them have become virtues. We speak of the competitive spirit and the this and the that. And, and uh, in, in our sexual lives, we regard the only, the only uh, vice in our sexual life is anybody uh, wagging a finger about uh, anything. Uh, but I don't even, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter whether the moral spin is positive or negative. It's not a moral question. And it's clear from reading Paul he's not talking about morality. Or at least he's not uh, analyzing the problem at the level of morality. He is saying all of these things are symptoms of a psychological disintegration. They're symptoms of the self deconstructing under the abrasive pressure of the mimetic passions, losing a sense of self. Many people have begun to, to discuss the deconstruction of the subject in our age. 
the disintegration of subjectivity. And the pressures of modernity are bringing about the disintegration of subjectivity. Well, that's no news to Paul 2,000 years ago. Evil, moral evil, is the result of the lack of being. Moral evil is the result of the lack of being. And its motive force is resentment towards others born of that lack. The sense that somebody else has it, namely being, and I don't. Evil is ontologically, morally, and intellectually empty, but it has a semblance of moral coherence as long as the resentment that gives rise to it has a clear object on which to focus. The Deutero-Pauline author of Ephesians picks up on this theme when he says, you must give up your old way of life. You must put aside your old self. Now this is not like moving knickknacks on the, you know, on the end table. This is, a, this is seriously what he's talking What does it mean to put aside one's old self? This is, this is the essence of the problem. You must give up your old way of life. You must put aside your old self, which gets corrupted by following illusory desires. Epithumia, same word. Your mind must be renewed by the spiritual revolution so that you can put on a new self that has been created in God's way in the goodness and holiness of truth. Even if you are angry, you must not sin. Notice anger and sin. Never let the sun set on your anger or you will give the devil a foothold. And then he goes on, never have grudges against others or lose your temper or raise your voice or call each other names or allow any sort of spitefulness. Be friends with each other. Forgive each other as, as you have been forgiven uh, in Christ. When he says here, even if you are angry, you must not sin, he's trying to arrest this thing. It can only be arrested at the level of epithumia, the level of desire. But down here, he, he, seems, he realizes that the cat's already out of the bag. So he says, if it's gotten this far, don't let it go from anger to sin. He realizes that the gap is right there. What, what, what Nietzsche and Kierkegaard call resentiment, resentment, is the thing that triggers it. And whether it's the resentiment of Adam and Eve in the garden or of you know, you and me. So he says, don't let the resentment, the resentment become sin. And then he says, never let the sun set on your anger. And the word here for anger is parorgismos, parorgismos, which is a fit, a violent fit of indignation. You could say a fit of righteous indignation. And the heart of that word is orge, which means anger, but it's especially intense form of anger. But that is also the root word for orgy, which was a nocturnal 
frenzy that led to a violent sacrifice. So when, so when the author of Ephesians says, never let the sun set on your par orgismos, there's something structurally profound about that because of the nocturnal ritual called the orgy, which that orge could become if, if it runs its course. The Dionysian frenzy and the murder at the end of the Dionysian frenzy. This is where the Gospels are so much more serious than we realize. They're talking about something serious. Jesus, Jesus didn't come and say, the temple is finished, thank you and goodbye. He said, the temple is finished and I will take its place. And we have to ask ourselves and ask the Gospel, is that so? How could that be so? But that's an outrageous claim. He says, you have used the sacrificial system up to this moment to stay sane and civil. I'm now going to take it away from you. You're going to now have trouble staying sane and civil. I'm going to give you another way of staying sane and civil. And that is to fall in love with me. To follow me. Not, because, not out of some piety or wouldn't it be nice or he's a lovely guy or we, he's God's uh, you know, incarnation. It's the alternative to the anthropology that we humans have lived with since the beginning of culture. Well, if the elimination of the temple the dismantling of humanity's age-old sacrificial system is a bold and dangerous thing. Christ Christian revelation's alternative to the temple is just as bold and just as dangerous. Namely, that access to God is now to be had through a human being. I want to explore the dangers involved in that possibility. In a way, the dismantling of the temple loosens the fundamental distinction that the temple existed to maintain, the distinction between the sacred and the profane. In a way, it makes the incarnation inevitable. It also destroys the social distinctions or, makes them, or renders them uh, circumstantial, renders them something other than ultimate, something other than permanent and ontological. So it breaks down all those distinctions. It's only a matter of time. If the to the extent that the temple doesn't function, the sacrificial system doesn't work, it's only a matter of time before the, the sacred and the profane, as it existed under the under the dispensation of the sacrificial system, breaks down, the distinction cannot hold, and forms of the incarnation begin to happen. Now the question is, what form will they take? There is the gospel form, which is that we have Jesus as the face and voice and emanation of the living God of love, and then all the other forms. 
which is all of us turning each other into gods and goddesses, demons and demigods, and going crazy. Well, I want to pursue the, the, the riskiness, the riskiness of the Christian alternative to the temple. Two scholars, John Moyne and Coleman Barks, wrote of the 13th century Persian poet Rumi, and they said this about him. Rumi followed in the line of his father and his ancestors, scholars, theologians, and jurists. Until the age of 37, he seems to have been a conventional teacher under the royal patronage. In 1244, he met the wandering dervish Shams of Tabriz. Quote, what I had thought of before as God, I met today in a person. This recognition strengthened, the scholar's still writing, this recognition strengthened and galvanized Rumi's belief. His poetry filled with a longing to be the friend, the close spiritual presence he first saw in Shams, later in Saladin Zarkub, the goldsmith, still later in his scribe, Husam. In Rumi's poetry, they go on to say, there is always the mystery of the pronoun. Who is this you he addresses? Shams? Saladim Zarkub? Husam? The inner angelic counterpart? The divine beloved? A god person alloyed of the longing of lover for beloved? The friend, all of the above? And then they say, pronouns dissolve within the pressure of Rumi's recognition of his true identity. This is incredible. Because pronouns dissolve within the pressure of Paul's recognition of his true identity as well. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Pronouns dissolve within the pressure of Jesus' recognition of his true identity. It is not I who speak, it is the Father who speaks through me. The Father and I are one. You see, the pronouns dissolve within the pressure of the recognition of our true identity. This is an amazing insight and one that puts us on a as an incredibly perilous path, potentially perilous path. The scholars go on to say about Rumi, the essential power of Rumi's poetry is ecstasy. An ecstasy melting the confinement of the ego into a larger, elastic, cross-pollinating dance of selves which sounds marvelous, but I, ha I, I must say, watch out for that. That is too much like modernity for my taste. A melting of the confinement of the ego into a larger, elastic, cross-pollinating dance of selves. Now, Eliot said we must go by way in which there is no ecstasy. And people said of Eliot the same thing they said of Paul. Oh, there he goes again, you know, trying to rain on our parade. But I think that there's something very profound in Eliot's insight and something... Now, I love Rumi's poetry. You understand? I think Rumi was, um, was something of a real prophet. 
but he was living in the 13th century and he and his experience of this problematic of the pronouns was was happening to someone who was already a a uh, a stable person and in and it was happening at an early stage in this process <clears throat> but anyway go, they go on to say for rumi pronouns were problematic rumi is speaking they say of a fluctuating exchange between beings pronouns cannot record this process they refer either to oneself or to others, not to the mixing of the two. Well, R Rumi said in one of his poems, Who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? We could compare this with the Johannine Jesus, speaking of the Father and his intimacy with the Father, his canonic life, his emptied life, his life that was simply the the conduit for the Father coming into the world, the expression of the Father's concern for the world. And Paul, likewise, speaking of, of Jesus functioning through him as a conduit. But there is the risk of this melting of the confinement of the ego into a larger, elastic, cross-pollinating dance of cells. That's the 13th century. In the 17th, the very first beginning of the 17th century, Cervantes finished his, his novel, Don Quixote, and we find out this about Don Quixote. You know, we read this novel as though it's a, in a, very, it's, it's a romantic novel, and Don Quixote is this marvelous guy who dares to tilt at windmills, and we think this is really the great spirit, you know, undaunted spirit, and we think this is marvelous. This is not the spirit in which Cervantes wrote the novel. He wrote the novel in a much more, uh, in a much more, uh, I won't say cynical, but uh, he, he sees what's going on. So the narrator of the novel says this early on. You must know that when our gentleman had nothing to do, which was almost all the year round, he passed his time in reading books of knight errantry. He grew so strangely besotted with these amusements that he sold many acres of arable land to purchase books of that kind. He gave him help, himself up so wholly to reading romances that a night's he would pour on until it was day, and a day's he would read on until it was night, and thus by sleeping little and reading much, the moisture of his brain was exhausted to that degree that he at last lost the use of his reason. His head was filled with nothing but enchantments, quarrels, battles, challenges, wounds, complaints, amours, tournaments, and abundance of stuff and impossibility. In other words, it was filled with exactly that stuff that Paul was warning about. But this is a humorous novel, okay? But still, having... Now, the narrator goes on. Having lost his understanding... He unluckily stumbled upon the oddest fancy that ever entered into a madman's brain. For now, he thought it convenient and necessary, as well as for the increase of his own honor as the service of the public, to turn knight-errant himself and roam through the world in quest of adventures. Now, that may be the oddest fancy that ever entered into a madman's brain, that is to say, to mimic one's model, but it's right at the heart of Christian anthropology, the imitatio Christi. See? It's mad, in a way. It's mad if you choose the wrong model. 
So later on, Don Quixote is talking to Sancho, his sidekick, and he says, I want you to know, Sancho, that the famous Amadis of Gaul was one of the most perfect knight-errants of all time. But what am I saying, one of the most perfect? I should say, the only, the first, the unique, the master, the lord of all those who existed in the world. Amadis was the pole, the star, the sun for brave and amorous knights, and we others should imitate him. Thus, my friend Sancho, I reckon that whoever imitates him best will come closest to perfect chivalry. Now, that's innocent enough. We're talking the beginning of the 17th century, a kind of discovery of the power of the model who is a human being. Notice, though, that uh, Quixote never encounters Amadis de Gaulle, his model. His model is a literary figure. He never crosses him in real life. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to uh, sit across from him at the office every day. He has no encounter with him. You see, there's no possibility that a rival, Amadis de Gaulle remains this transcendent figure. You see, that's why he gets so excited when he says, he's the only one, the thing, the Lord of all. All we have to do is model ourselves after him. He's living in a world where, because of the literary nature of this, of this uh, affection, there's no possibility that it's going to be fouled up by rivalry. But if you leap from first of the 17th century into the middle of the 20th century, or the first of the 20th century, to Virginia Woolf's novel, The Waves, you get a group of people who are in the same social milieu, which is increasingly the modern situation because the social differentiations have been discovered to be arbitrary and are, and are dissolving. And so more and more, our models, our eyes fall upon, we model just about everybody we see, and our eyes fall upon models who are sharing our social environment. And then the, the comedy of Don Quixote becomes less funny and it becomes more, uh, more tragic. Rhoda, although it's not without a certain funniness too, as long as it's in a fictional form, Rhoda, one of the figures in, uh, in Virginia Woolf's novel, says this, I have no face. Other people have faces. Susan and Jenny have faces. They are here. Their world is the real world. They laugh, really. They get angry, really. Why, while I have to look first and do what other people do when they have done it. See now with what extraordinary certainty Jenny pulls on her stockings simply to play tennis. That I admire. But I admire Susan's way better, for she is more resolute and less ambitious of distinction than Jenny is. Both despise me for copying what they do, but I attach myself only to names and faces and hoard them like amulets against disaster. 
This is the disintegration of the self under the pressures of mimetic emulation. This is, if you'll allow me to say so, the melting of the confinement of the ego in a larger, elastic, cross-pollinating dance of selves. But we are mimetic creatures. We will not cease to be mimetic. We cannot. If we say, I am not imitating, I will never imitate, we're simply imitating somebody who said that, and it'll be <laughs> ten minutes later, it will be obvious to everybody in the room except for us that we're imitating somebody else. The question is, who fundamentally are we imitating? Kierkegaard said, and he beat Nietzsche to the punch. Nietzsche tried to pin this on Christianity, and he was right, to some degree he was right, but I better not get into that. Anyway, Kierkegaard uh, said that the constituent principle of the modern age was resentment. The constituent principle of the modern age was resentment. And he defined resentment as the transformation of happy admiration into unhappy envy. And he said it is the constituent principle of the modern age. Who said that? Kierkegaard. Thank you. Now you notice, remember in uh, Rumi, he first saw God in Shams of Tabriz. And then it says he saw him in Saladim Zarkub. And then he saw him in his own secretary, Hussam. You get this slippage. It doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't have any dire consequences, apparently, in Rumi's life. But Rumi's living in the 13th century. By the time you get to the 19th and the 20th, this slippage is becoming, it becoming chronic. And so we're getting these... Uh, these strange relationships where we're turning each other into these powers in the world. Uh, the the, the uh, turning of others into gods and demigods and the frenzy that comes up out of that. In Girard's first book about mimetic desire, he spoke of this same thing uh, that Kierkegaard speaks of here when he says that the transformation from uh, happy admiration into unhappy envy, which, is, which causes resentment become the constituent, uh, the constituent principle. Girard says, the imitation of Christ becomes the imitation of one's neighbor. A surge of pride breaks against the humanity of the mediator, of the model. A surge of pride, because now we're, imita we're, we're imitating the neighbor as we w would have imitated Christ in a, in the, had we been living in the earlier age, perhaps. We imitate the neighbor, but then a surge of pride breaks upon the humanity. We, we feel disgusted. We're ashamed that we're imitating. So we spend half our time imitating and the other half hiding the imitation, trying to make it look autonomous, independent, making sure we cut this, this uh, profile that looks like we're not Im imitating anybody. And so between those two enormous labors, we're buckling. You know, I mean, this is the modern world. So Girard says, 
The imitation of Christ becomes the imitation of one's neighbor. The surge of pride breaks against the humanity of the mediator, and the result of this is hatred. That's really, hatred in that sense is a synonym for resentment or resentment in Kierkegaard. This is what's going on. The, the tremendous uh, mimetic passions are being generated again. Now, I have an example of the transition from happy admiration to unhappy envy. And it's the transition from Arthur Miller's Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman to his sons, and particularly his younger son, Hap Loman. Let me describe the scene. Willie is talking to his boss. His boss has just fired him. Willie is sort of reminiscing. And he says the following. <clears throat> Oh, yeah, my father lived many years in Alaska. He was an adventurous man. We've got quite a little streak of self-reliance in our family. This is There's a lot of pathos in this, you know. This is Willie Loman a few weeks away from his suicide. And he says, I thought I'd go out with my older brother and try to locate him and maybe settle in the north with the old man. And I notice that Willie's problem begins with a kind of fatherlessness, the absence of a model. And I almost decided to go when I, met a, when I met a salesman in the Parker house. His name was Dave Singleman. He was 84 years old, and he'd drum merchandise in 31 states. And old Dave, he'd go up to his room, you understand, put on his green velvet slippers, I'll never forget, and pick up his phone and call the buyers. And without ever leaving his room at the age of 84, he made his living. And when I saw that, I realized that selling was the greatest career a man could want. This is like Don Quixote and Amadeus de Gaulle. Cause, he goes on, cause what could be more satisfying than to be able to go at the age of 84 into 20 or 30 cities and pick up the phone and be remembered and loved and helped by so many different people. That's really what he wants. But Willie Loman is like the duck, you know, who hatches out in the barnyard and there's no ducks around and he sees some other animal and that's Mama Duck, you know. And it's this, you know, who is your model? This is the question. And so, for poor Willie, he's just thrown out into the modern world, and bango, here's Dave Singleman, and he thinks, oh, that's it. Green velvet slippers, picking up the phone, making a living, this is it. And he goes on, do you know when he died, and by the way, he died the death of a salesman in his green velvet slippers in the smoker of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford going into Boston. When he died, hundreds of salesmen and buyers were at his funeral. That's his model. And shortly after this, Willie commits suicide, and nobody except his family shows up. That's the pathos. But the point I want to draw from this is that, like Quixote, there is never a rivalry. He never has to work with Dave Singleman. He never has to compete with him. He never has... Uh, he always regards him as tra a transcendent figure. So, as pathetic as his mem as modeling of on this figure is, as pathetic as that is, he doesn't go mad. He doesn't go mad. You know, the the almost at the very bottom of the inferno. Uh, is, is an image of the Archbishop Ruggieri eating the back brain for all eternity uh, out of the head of uh, 
Count Ugolino. And these two figures had become dub rival doubles, you know, in this way that can happen. And Dante's image of their eternity is that they sit there and gnaw on each other forever. It's that sick. It can be that sick. Nothing like that happens to Willie. He's lost. He's lost, but he's not mad. You see? His son, however, Haploman, says this about his model. All I can do now is wait for the merchandise manager to die. And suppose I get to be merchandise manager. He's a good friend of mine, and he's just built a terrific estate on Long Island. Notice, he's a good friend of mine. See, we're in the same, already, we're in the same social milieu. And he's a friend. He's a friend. And instantly, he's an enemy. Because we're equal. So he's a good friend of mine, and he's just built a terrific estate on Long Island, and he lived there about two months and sold it, and now he's building another one. He can't enjoy it once it's finished, and I know that's just what I would do. I don't know what the hell I'm working for, but then it's what I've always wanted, my own apartment, a car, and plenty of women, and still, God damn it, I'm lonely. It's what I've always wanted. I don't know what I'm working for. What does... What, when Hap gets up in the morning, what is it that gets him up? The determination to replace the merchandise manager, even though he knows that there's nothing worth having in that position. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to do with the object they're, they're vying for. It has to do with the rivalry. In the modern world, there's a festering relationship between the model and the imitator. And that's because the models are all human beings, as, as Gerard said. And resentment is born of our realization of their mere humanness. Finally, if we're close enough to them, if they remain like a modest de Gaulle or Dave Singleman, far enough away, we can admire them. If they remain simply on the cover of People magazine, fine. But if we have to have breakfast with them over an extended period of time, it's different. This and more and more, we're, we share the same social milieu. So the festering of the relationship between the model and the imitator. This festering is due to, I think, the following. The rituals of sacrificial catharsis no longer function. They no longer override our mimetic passions. They no longer restore social uh, hierarchies and social distinctions. They throw us all into one great soup together, or we're thrown into one great soup as a result of the failure of these rituals to create social hierarchies. They are, they're failing because the gospel and the cross have deconstructed that whole process. So there's a leveling going on, and in that leveling, as long as we continue to operate on epithumia, which is mimetic desire, we generate rivalries, and we have nothing, over, nothing that can, can resolve those rivalries, and so they just get crazier, and they either lead to violence or craziness. Violence or insanity. And that's what Nietzsche saw. He, saw. he said, we're either going to be mad or we're going to be violent. And he said, I choose violence. And then he went mad. It's not... It, he thought you could still do it. He, never, he wasn't being personally violent. But violence or madness, that's... Whether it's expressed socially or 
psychologically. Okay. Hap Lohman says, sometimes I want to just rip my clothes off in the middle of the store and outbox that goddamn merchandise manager. This never happened to Willie Lohman and his model. And he says, I mean, I can outbox, outrun, outlift anybody in that store, and I have to take orders from these common petty sons of bitches till I can't stand it anymore. It sounds like Achilles and Agamemnon. You see? Outbox, outlift, outrun. And remember what Ulysses, Shakespeare's Ulysses had said? And this neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. The general's disdained by him one step below, he by the next, the next by him beneath. So every step, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. That the kind of nihilism that is born of that pale and bloodless emulation. Resentment, but still pale and bloodless. And so he says, I can outbox anybody, and sometimes I feel like doing it. Had Willie Loman been more of, of an effective model for Hap, he might, Hap might have uh, turned more of his mimetic resentment towards his father, thereby displaying the typical generation gap behavior beneath which psychoanalysis would discern an Oedipus complex. But it's not an Oedipus complex at all. You know, when Shakespeare had said, when this crisis comes on, the rude son should strike his father dead. Freud misunderstood that. He thought it was rivalry for the... The, the rivalry is not for the object. It's against the rival. And it doesn't have to do with sons and children. It has to do with any social environment where the, where the contagion has erupted and cannot be solved sacrificially. Shakespeare understood it far better than Freud and the psychoanalytic tradition upon which he put an indelible stamp. And I think that whole tradition has to now be rethought. Every, I mean, I'm not the only one to think that. This morning's New York Times, Russell Baker, has a funny column about a very famous uh, non-marriage that is breaking up in New York. <laughs> Names need not be mentioned. But, I, but I'll just read you one paragraph from Russell Baker's very funny column. And this is not a, it's not a, ter uh, this paragraph's not particularly, I mean, it's more to the point rather than just being humorous. He says, as time goes by, uh, excuse me, as time goes by, the song observes, hearts, quote, full of passion, jealousy, and hate remain the fundamentals driving relationships between man and woman. In the night, now he's talking about a particular kind of uh, scene. In nightmare marriages, passion, jealousy, and hate can produce frenzies of destruction that spare nothing. Not each other, not self-respect, not property, not friends, not even the children. End quote. This is, the f this is the sacrificial frenzy without a sacrificial solution in which we are turning each other into sacrificial solutions or trying to. Even though, to go back to Hap Lohman for a minute, I'm moving towards my... Even though 
the moral and emotional valence of uh, Haploman's fixation on his model has changed from admiration to envy and resentment. It is still, for the time being, focused on only one person. Therefore, however perverse and however malicious, however much potential malice there is in Hap Lohmann's preoccupation with his model, it still provides him with a psychological organizing principle. You see, it's still singular. It hasn't become a whole lot of people. But there are clear signs that the focusing power of Hap Lohmann's resentment is failing, that his resentment is becoming chronic and general, not just focused on the, on the merchandise manager. He says in one candid remark to his brother Biff, you're going to call me a bastard when I tell you this, that girl Charlotte I was with tonight is engaged to be married in five weeks. The guy's in line for the vice presidency of the store. I don't know what gets into me. Maybe I just have an overdeveloped sense of competition or something. But I went and ruined her. And furthermore, I can't get rid of her. And he's the third executive I've done that to. He's the third executive I've done that to. He's talking about the woman he's just been with, right? He's the third executive I've done that to. So Hap has lost his, the focus of his resentment, which was, while it was on the merchandise manager, at least for all of its perversity, at least was psychologically coherent. It gave him a kind of psychological focus. But now... It's whoever is up there, whoever the competition is with. And the apparent objects of this rivalry really are meaningless. It's the rivalry itself that has meaning. And so the, the, at the chronic stage of all this, resentment is the constituent principle of the modern age. Dostoevsky anticipated uh, this development that I just tried to show in in uh, Hap Lohman and where it, would where it would eventually lead. The spiteful anti-hero of his Notes from Underground says this, After all, people who know how to revenge themselves, how do they do it? Such a man simply rushes straight toward his object like an infuriated bull with his horns down, and nothing but a wall will stop him. Well, such a direct person I regard as the real normal man. As his tender mother nature wished to see him when she graciously brought him into being on the earth. I envy such a man till I am green in the face. He is stupid. I am not disputing that. But perhaps the normal man should be stupid. How do you know? I want, to, I want, to, I want us to study notes from underground after we get out of the gospel of john but the seething resentment of this man he's talk, he's talking to the reader or to the whoever's listening to him and he he's he's anticipating everything how do you know see he's he's just a sack of resentment and he envies somebody who can give vent to that resentment that revenge he says i i'm green with envy for somebody like that this is the madness that comes from this being in the grip of this stuff. And it has to do with modeling 
other human beings in a world that no longer has sacrificial protections, no longer has social differentiations, etc. So there's a kind of psychological promiscuity, which is really the problem. The sexual promiscuity is a symptom of psychological promiscuity. It's, that's not the problem. And uh, I think the problem of psychological promiscuity is brought out marvelously by Flannery O'Connor's short story, Parker's Back. So I want to quote that. And uh, the, the anti-hero of that story, O.E. Parker, is typical uh, O'Connor-esque figure, stupid, sullen, um, uh, arrogant, and so on. But O'Connor is not writing about hillbillies. Uh, she's writing about modern intellectuals. And we have to realize that in order to get to realize how funny and wonderful her stories are. Uh, she's not so mean-spirited that she would pick on these rednecks in southern Georgia. She's writing about the uh, modern world. So here's Parker. He's uh, at the age of 14. By the way, that's the age when the church, uh, in its wisdom, provides uh, children with the or young people with the sacrament of confirmation. And the purpose of the sacrament of confirmation is to put Christ right in the center of your line of sight and make that uh, and create an indelible imprint of Christ on your soul. So that's what confirmation is on. At the age when confirmation would be taking place, O.E. Parker goes to the fair. And he goes into the freak show. And he sees the tattooed man. And here's what happens. Except for his loins, which were girded with panther hide, the man's skin was patterned in what seemed from Parker's distance. He was near the back of the tent standing on a bench. A single, intricate design of brilliant color. The man, who was small and sturdy, moved about on the platform, flexing his muscles so that the arabesque of men and beasts and flowers on his skin appeared to have a subtle motion of its own. Parker was filled with emotion, lifted up as some people are when the flag passes. He's caught up in it. And then what to do? Only one thing, get tattoos. He went out and started getting tattoos. I mentioned, apropos the Sacrament of Confirmation, indelibility. This is precisely what the Sacrament of Confirmation aims at, indelibility. Parker's pathetic version of that is tattoos. He gets one, right? It lasts about a month, and then he gets sick of it. There's nothing to do but get another. You can't get him off, so he goes to get another. At some point, he makes the transition. The, the, well, this is what Girard calls the ontological disease. The ontological disease, like other diseases, has stages. There's a, there's a, he goes into a more serious stage of the ontological disease uh, at this moment in O'Connor's text. She says, He had stopped having lifeless tattoos, like anchors and crossed rifles. He had a tiger and a panther on each shoulder, a cobra coiled about a torch on his chest, hawks on his thighs, Elizabeth II and Philip over where his stomach and liver were, respectively. He did not much care... He did not care much what the subject was so long as it was colorful. On his abdomen, he had several obscenities, but only because that seemed a proper place for them. Parker would be satisfied with each tattoo about a month. Then something about it that
that had attracted him would wear off. This is a comment about the modern age that is unbelievable. Everything, this is the Heracliton flux, the Heracliton flux, which is the primal chaos of the sacrificial crisis, the inability to focus on anything for very long. Simone Weiss said, attention, attention is a form of prayer. You can be attending to a mathematical problem. It's a form of prayer. Eliot said, in the modern world, it is we are distracted from distraction by distraction. And so it would last about a month. Whenever a decent-sized mirror was available, he would, Parker would get in front of it and study the overall look. The effect was not of one intricate arabesque of colors. Remember, that's what he thought he saw in The Tattooed Man. This coherence. This is like you see it on People magazine. It looks coherent. He was at the back of the tent standing on a bench. It looked where he was, looked totally, you know, coherent. But he looked at himself, which was the copy of that, and he saw what it really was it was not one arabesque of colors, but something haphazard and botched. This, and then it says, a huge dissatisfaction would come over him. I, I would say to you, this huge dissatisfaction is what is now coming over us moderns for precisely the same reason. And we call it the midlife crisis or the this or the that, but this is what it is. The effect was not one... Okay, a huge, a huge dissatisfaction would come over him and he would go off and find another tattooist and have another space filled up. That was the only thing he could do. Finally, he reaches the crisis. His dissatisfaction... The, the disease gets progressively worse. His dissatisfaction from being chronic and latent had suddenly become acute and raged in him. It was as if the panther and the lion and the serpents and the eagles and the hawks had penetrated his skin and lived inside him in raging warfare. Raging warfare. Thumos is rage. And epithumia is desire, is the kind of desire that results in rage, imitative desire. It results in rage when it breaks against the humanity of the model. And once the sacred and the profane has been shattered, the, the sacrificial system for maintaining it is shattered, it is inevitable that the model will be a human. It is, if we are to find God, it will be in a human face. And the question is, which one? Nicholas Berdyaev, the Russian philosopher, said, inner division wears away personality. And this division can be overcome only by making a choice by selecting a definite object for one's love. Debauchery, Berdive writes, means the absolute inability to choose from among many attractions. Debauchery, you see, is not the moral problem, it's the psychological problem, the inability to choose, to make a choice. In the modern world, the refusal to choose masquerades as freedom. Freedom is the ability to choose. It's the daring to choose, which means 
the renunciation of all the other choices, foreclosing all the other choices, renouncing all the other choices, and choosing one. That's freedom. But in the modern world, the refusal to choose, which is keeping the options open, masquerades as freedom, and we're going nuts. And we think we're becoming freer. And Berdayev saw it clearly. Gabriel Marcel, existentialist philosopher, says the essential ontological datum, ontology is the, the study of being, the essential ontological datum is love. But it is a love, he says, distinct from desire or even opposed to desire, a love which involves the subordination of the self to a superior reality, a reality at my deepest level more truly me than I am myself. The ontological datum is canonic, emptying, self-emptying, is to subordinate oneself to something which is at its deepest level more truly me than I am myself. Why? Because I am the effect of my mimetic predilections exercised more or less at the social level. If I want to find out who I really am, I should exercise those mimetic predilections more seriously. That is to say, to become, I am made in the image and likeness of God. Right? Okay. And then he says, such a love, a love that involves the subordination to, of the self to a superior reality that is at, a deep, at the deepest level more truly me than I am myself, such a love, he says, abolishes the tension between the self and the other. That's what sacrifice was designed to do. If the, if, uh, the Christ of the Gospels comes to... Uh, to replace the temple, then he has to do that. He has to abolish the tension between the self and the other. In other words, has to restore our social harmony, our spirit of, of uh, fellowship, the way the sacrificial system did. And Gabriel Marcel has put his finger right on it. So, back to O.E. Parker, he finally realizes that all of this He's, he's sort of like, uh, uh, he's sort of like uh, Augustine, you know, to Carthage, then I came, and he realizes that he's just squandered it all, you know. It's, it's all been debauchery, not in any sexual sense for O.E. Parker, but simply in this, as this, in this metaphor of tattooing. And finally he realizes that he has, to, he, he has to become religious. And so he wants to get a religious tattoo. There's only one place left. It's on his back. And so he goes to the artist and says, I need a religious tattoo. The art, quoting from this, the story, the artist went over to the cabinet at the back of the room and began to look over some art books. Who are you interested in, he said? Saints, angels, Christ, or what? God, Parker said. Father, Son, or Spirit? Just God, Parker said impatiently. Christ, I don't care, just so it's God. <laughs> so he brought over a book that had all these Christs in it. And the book started with the, with the sweet Jesus pictures. Uh, suffer, them, suffer the little ones to come unto me, kind of Jesus pictures. And then they got grimmer and grimmer as you got towards the back. And the artist said, if I were you, I'd pick one of those first ones. 
But Parker goes, because he's the creation of Flannery O'Connor, he goes flashing through those first ones, just goes right on. Towards the end of the book, he gets to this uh, Byzantine, the way she puts it, the Byzantine Christ with all demanding eyes. And Parker said, that one. And the tattoo artist says, if I were you, you know, I think Parker said, that's the one. And the, and the tattoo artist says, that'll cost you plenty. The Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, anyone who wants to save his psyche will lose it. But anyone who loses his psyche for my sake and for the sake of the Gospel will save it. There is more revelatory psychological insight in that one verse than in all the psychoanalytic literature to date. We haven't even begun to plumb the meaning of that verse. But we had better start because it is so relevant to the crisis through which we are now living. Once the temple was... Uh, was superseded it's only a matter of time before we turned each other into idols the admonition to as we saw in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians the admonition to love your neighbor as yourself is among other things an admonition against idolatry love your neighbor as yourself you see not as an idol not as a Christ not as a model in that sense, you see. If one's neighbor begins to play the role in one's life played by Christ in the life of Paul or the role played by the Father in the life of Jesus, then the result will eventually be hatred. <coughs> because the imitation of Christ, as Gerard says, the imitation of Christ becomes the imitation of one's neighbor and a surge of pride breaks against the humanity of the mediator and the result is hatred. So love your neighbor as yourself is a warning, among other things, against idolatry. Now back to the beginning of the gospel. I leaped over it to go to the story of Cana and the cleansing of the temple. John appears, John the forerunner, John the Baptist appears, and the first thing he says is, I am not the Christ, I am not Elijah, I am not the prophet. Now, here is, this John is teaching us, this gospel teaches us, like they all do, how to experience, this shows us how this evangelist and his community experienced uh, the risen Christ, and uh, it is an instruction on how to do so. It begins with a kind of sweeping kenosis, if you will, an, an emptying. I am not, I am not, I am not. Okay? A breaking down of the pronoun and its possible associations. What then are you? And he says, and he quotes scripture, which is, which is a, a way of saying, in order to find out what I am, I have to understand myself as well as these texts understand me. So he quotes scripture. I am, as Isaiah said, a voice... <coughs> of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord. A voice 
In this gospel, Jesus is the Logos, the Word, and John announces, I am the voice. I am the conduit. I, I serve only that, you see. And I come to make straight the way of the Lord. Even though I come before the Lord, I come following the Lord. I come as a disciple of the Lord, even though we, I come before the Lord. And then, uh, the next day, Jesus came toward John. John is standing there. And he said, his disciples are looking at John. And John redirects their gaze away from him because what happened to John and what happened to the merchandise manager, uh, you see, what happened to the, all the rest of the human beings who get caught in this thing. Once the temple is gone, the idolatry is there. And so John points them to Jesus and, they, and he says, Look, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Very quickly on this, even though we should spend weeks on it. The Lamb of God is a sacrificial reference. We misread it because we, we don't realize who is demanding a sacrifice in the Passion story and in this gospel. 